everybody, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about being a conqueror. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to say Happy New Year. As we move into 2021, maybe one of your goals is to read the Bible more this year. There's something that we do as a church that might help. We are constantly running Bible plans on the YouVersion app for people to read together. If you're interested in being a part of one of those, you can simply go to creekside.me and click on the yellow button that says YouVersion in order to connect with us on one of those plans. I believe that God's word can transform your life. And if it is one of your goals to read it more this year, I think it's a great goal. And we'd love to be able to help with that. So go to creekside.me and click on that yellow button that says version. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen today. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Uh, it's funny, as, as, we, as I begin today, um, on Wednesday, I was, I was kind of finishing up my sermon for the week. And... I told our, our uh, setup live stream crew earlier today, uh, at the very end of my studying, I, I had this great illustration come to my mind. Hopefully, you know, God, well, hopefully not, maybe. God gave it to me, and I wrote down, I wrote down high school springs. And I woke up Thursday morning to just do the final touches on my sermon to send the email out to Bryn so she could do her work and me. And I had no idea what high school springs meant. And I still don't know what high school springs means. So I don't even have an illustration to begin this other than to say that sometimes, sometimes in this life, we are, we feel as though we will never be conquerors. And that is the name of, of our series, Conquerors, right? And, and we, are, we are talking about being a conqueror through Jesus. And, and what's so interesting about it is that as I lose the actual illustration that, that God brought into my brain, I don't think that most of us really need one because there are so many things that make us feel like we will never overcome, that we will never become conquerors, that we will never be victorious, we'll never be victors over these things. And, and today we're going to we're going to talk about one that I think, even if you're not a Christian, you still really understand it. And we're going to really continue some of what Paul said last week. But today, we're going to talk about overcoming uh, being bound by sin. And I'll spend a little bit of time today talking about sin and, and kind of biblically that thing. But let me, at the beginning of this, just say that, that I think all of us have felt at times in our lives that we are over that we are bound by by doing things that we just wish we didn't do. We we are we are stuck doing things that we wish we would stop doing. We are we are unable to do things that we wish we could do. We've all felt like, you know, there are these bad parts of my life, bad parts of my life. There's these things in my life and I wish that I could break free from them. And we talked about that somewhat last week, but he, even more, I wish that I could break free from them so that I would no longer have to feel guilty about them, so I would no longer have to deal with the consequences of them. And, and you know, we might call those things addictions. Maybe they're just, in your mind, they're just things that you just do and you, you can't stop doing them. But we all have struggled with things that we know are bad. And, and in some ways, those things 
bind us. That's the word Paul's going to use today. And we're going to look at some really incredible news. This whole thing, as we've gone through Romans, it's just good news after good news after good news, right? And, and today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that is really good news for those of us who are Christians, and I think really eye-opening news for people who aren't. Here's what Paul says in Romans 2.1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. Now let me pause and not even get to the main point because I think it's so important to point out that Paul uses sibling language, like brothers and sisters is how the NIV translates it. Brothers and sisters. For, for me, this is important, and, and this happens throughout Scripture, and I've made points of it in the past, pointing it out, made a point of pointing it out in the past, because when it comes to things like sin, or, or to use more generic language, uh, doing bad things in our lives, right? I think that when we are reading somebody else's letter about it, there is a tendency to feel as though that person is against you and not for you. If I know this is so true as a pastor, people just feel this way about me. But you, so you can do me, you can put somebody else in the scenario. But if somebody was to come up to you and say, hey, there is something in your life that is bad. Immediately, what do you do? You get defensive. You, you say, who are you to tell me? You start talking about the bad things in their lives. You know, you go through their life. You go through all of the defense mechanisms that we, you know, that could be triggered inside of us. And even I think the Bible can have that effect on people that haven't spent a long time reading it or been a part of Christianity for a long time. We can say, who are you, the guy that wrote 2,000 years ago, to speak into my life about sin? And Paul's going to spend this whole chapter, um, I, I wrote Romans 2.1, it's Romans 7.1, and I said it, I just realized, but, uh, but Romans 7.1, uh, who are you, Paul, to spend a whole chapter talking about sin, get off my back, don't talk to me about my sin, you know, your sin is your sin, and whatever I think is right is you know what I think is right, but, but when he begins here, and maybe because he's going to spend this whole chapter talking about sin, he begins with this, this sibling language, brothers and sisters, and to me, it's an incredible reminder that everything Paul is saying here is said out of his love for the people who would read this letter, both his first readers and you and I today. And so when Paul talks about sin and, and really breaking free from it, I think that we all need to understand that he isn't doing that because he, he's a jerk or because he doesn't want you to be happy or have the life that you want or that he's on a pedestal, you know, thinking of himself as high and mighty. He's doing it because he loves the people who would read this letter that he's writing to the people in Rome, the church in Rome. And so he says, do you not know brothers and sisters? And then he says, I'm speaking to those who know the law. And really the entire passage is going to be driven by law. We think of, uh, I've said sin at the beginning of this, but, but really he's going to talk about the law that points out sin in our lives, that makes us guilty of sin, that shows that we are guilty of sin. And he says, I'm writing to people who know the law. He just says that. And that's us, right? I mean, we live in a country where there are laws. We don't live in a, a country that is, you know, driven by anarchy. Uh, we live in a country where we understand laws. And for Paul, he's writing to some Jewish people. They had the Old Testament law. And he's writing to Roman people who are really proud of the laws that they had created and come up with. And so he says, you guys know the law. And he says, the law only has authority over someone as long as that person lives. So very simple. 
uh, statement. And, and really what's going to happen here is Paul's going to connect his thought in these verses to both what he has already said and to what's coming. In fact, if you read scholars on this passage, you'll find that they argue about, is this supposed to go in chapter 6 or is this supposed to go with chapter 8? And you see that it goes with both of them. Romans 6, 14, Paul says, For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. And Paul is going to kind of talk about that here. And then in Romans 8, 3, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so Paul now, in the very middle, is I think is a, is a concluding idea to what he said in chapter 6, and then as an introductory idea to what he says in chapter 8, he starts to talk about law, because he said, look, law no longer can be your master if you're under grace, and then he's going to talk about how law no longer has power over us because we've moved to being under the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the middle of this, he says this thing, he just like begins it by saying, if you're dead... The law no longer has power over you. And we know that's true, right? Like, nobody's going to come arrest you uh, if you're dead. Nobody's like, hey, you committed that crime last year, but we know you're in the grave, but let's deal with that. That's not how it works. And that's Paul's point. And he moves from that point because you're like, what does that have to do with anything, right? Like, what does that have to do with anything to this point in Romans 2, 2 through 7, 2 through 3? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So Paul moves to this illustration of what he's just said. He says, here's the illustration, it's marriage. And it's a little bit of a murky illustration, if I'm being honest with you, but it's an effective illustration nonetheless, especially when you understand the law here is the first husband. We are the woman. I did that like too proudly, I feel like. We are the woman and Jesus is the second husband in this. So the law is the first husband, we are the woman, and Jesus is the second husband. And Paul says the only thing that is supposed to break the bond between a man and his wife, a wife and his, her husband, is death. We all know the phrase, till death do us part, right? And this is Paul's main point, till death do us part. That is how marriage is supposed to go. We all know sometimes it doesn't go that way, but that's how it's supposed to go. And, and Paul points out here that if a person just leaves their spouse for another person, then they are committing adultery. We all know that too. He's not saying something that's unique or different. It's all something that we understand. If a person leaves their spouse for somebody else, it's adultery. And if that person remarries, it's adultery. However, however, Paul says, if there's a death, if somebody's died, then the person is free to be married. In fact, he uses the word released, which is a very strong word that means annulled or destroyed. Now, all this, if I'm, if I'm you right now, I'm like, what are we talking about here? Like, Paul is just launched into this illustration that seemingly has nothing to do with my sin or the law, I, I don't really, I mean, if, if I'm you, I'm like, I, I studied, you know, for the sermon, but if I'm you, I'm like, what is he even getting at here? Usually people start with a point and then they illustrate, right? Paul's starting with an illustration here and now he's going to move to a point and it's a really big and important point in Romans 7, 4. Here's, here's what he says. So my brothers and sisters, notice that he, he says it again, sibling language. 
You also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. This is the key point of the passage. This is the key point of Romans chapter 7. This is really what Paul wants you to understand. I think this is what that God wants you to understand today is what is said in verse 4. And the law in verse 4 clearly references the Old Testament law, something that Paul has been talking about throughout, and, and he has not done it in glowing, kind colors. It's been really negative. Here, let me just read you. If you haven't been with us, I'll get you up to speed. If you have been with us, you probably don't remember this, so I'm going to remind you. Uh, this is how Paul has talked about the law so far in the book of Romans. The law reveals sin, Romans 3.20. The law condemns sinners, Romans 3.19. The law defines sin as a transgression, Romans 4.15 and 5.13. The law brings wrath, Romans 4.15. The law increased transgression even in Romans 5.20. The law has no power to save, basically throughout the book of Romans to this point. The law leaves us dead. We see that more in Galatians 3.13, but it's been alluded to. I mean, Paul has been really negative about this thing called law. I just just thought of this right now, but I'm going to say it. I think one of the reasons that people push so hard against rules and laws in our postmodern society, one of the reasons that people don't like to say that there is truth, I think is because they recognize that when they embrace truth, it does so much of this in them. If there is a right and a wrong, then they have to recognize that sometimes they're wrong. If there is good and bad, then sometimes we, I'll say we, we do bad. The law shows us why we are sinners, how we are sinners, what we have done to be sinners. The law reveals in us sin, and that's what Paul's basically said about the law so far. Now, stop, pause, think of this question. Uh, if, you, if you're really paying attention, you would have this question. Well, wait a minute. In the Old Testament, the law, the Jewish law is spoken about, you know, like here's God and here's the Jewish law. Like it can't be spoken of any better. If you read Psalm 19 or Psalm 119, I mean, it's like the law is just this incredible thing. So, so now Paul, this Jewish man, is talking about the law in such negative terms. Like what is that? And that's exactly what Paul's going to answer in the passage we'll look at next week. So I'll leave it as a cliffhanger. But really, for now, right now, what Paul is talking about, what Paul is saying, what Paul wants you to see is that the law points out sin in you. It points out your guilt. It makes you worthy of the condemnation that, that comes through breaking the, the regulations of God. And if you're not a Christian, then you are under the power of that. In fact, you are, this is the word he uses, you are bound by it. You are bound by it. It holds you down. And we all, as I begin this sermon by saying, we all understand that even if we don't like the Old Testament law or believe the Old Testament law, we just know that there are certain qualities of good and bad in the world. And sometimes we do bad. And man, it points out in us just how far off we are from being what we want to be, what we know we should be, what even we feel as though God wants us to be. The law rules. It all points to our sinfulness. It points to how far off we are from being what we ought to be. And Paul says that, that binds you. It holds you down. It's a master over you because you're constantly just going to feel guilty, right? Like if there is just law and there is no grace, then you constantly will just feel guilty for breaking 
the law, for breaking the rules, for breaking what you know to be good. Paul says it binds you. But, but if you're a Christian, it doesn't anymore because now through the body of Christ, you might belong to another. Here's what Paul's getting at. He says, you saw, heard the beginning, the illustration. If, if you're dead, the law no longer has power over you, right? You, you're no longer condemned by law. That's true in every society. It's a universally accepted truth. And, oh, by the way, just like in marriage, once somebody dies, you're free to serve another. And now Paul kind of brings it back and says, here's my point. You are either bound to the law or by the law, or you can belong to God because... When Jesus died, he's already said this, we get to, this is incredible, I don't know how it all works, I don't know how God sees it all, but this is what the Bible teaches. We share in the death of Jesus and we share in his resurrection. So our old self that was bound by the law is dead and gone and now there is, for Christians, a new self that gets to belong to God. Think of this just with me. How much better is it to belong than to be bound by something? I love that, right? I, I just think it's so much better to belong than to be bound. It is so much better to be a part of something, to be in relationship to something than to be in slavery to something. And even if we didn't talk about what the somethings were, right? Like we just always see, we know that it is so much better to belong than to be bound. It's better to belong than to be bound. And Paul says, if you are a Christian, your old self has died with Christ, your new self has been raised, and you are no longer bound by the law, you are instead a person who belongs to Christ. Now, when we talk about how the law binds us, I think that this book called A Socio-Rhetorical Commentary on Romans, Ben Witherington III says, what binds us is the power, the control, or the jurisdiction of the law. And, and Paul says, look, if you've died with Christ by placing your faith in him and you've taken on the new life, the guilt, the condemnation, the power, the jurisdiction, that's, that's gone. And now you belong to Christ. And this is so much better. Now, a couple times in this sermon, I want to pause and answer questions that you're probably not even asking. But if you sat around and thought about my sermon all week, which you won't do, but if you did, you might ask this question. Well, does that mean that we are lawless? Like there is no law for Christians. We, we do whatever we want. Now, first of all, we don't get to do whatever we want. And Paul's going to talk about that. You'll see that in Romans 7, 7 through 25. We've already seen that in the book of Romans. We see that throughout Paul's writings. But, but furthermore, you might ask, well, what is our relationship to the Old Testament law? What is, do we have, as Christians, do I look at the Ten Commandments and say, eh, nope, not bound by those anymore? Or do I hold tightly to those and, and do I follow them? And, and making the question more complicated, because I think most of us, you know, at least nine of the Ten Commandments, we're all in, right? Like even t people that reject the Bible, they're pretty much all in on at least nine of the Ten Commandments, maybe not the God stuff, like six of the Ten Commandments at least, right? But like, like we shouldn't lie, we shouldn't murder, we're all on the same page there, right? We all think that's true. But like, do I get to wear two kinds of fabric? 
you know? Like when I have a mole, do I have to have a priest check me out or am I okay to go to my doctor? I mean, like, like where do I follow the rules and what does it mean to be bound by that versus, you know, now belonging to Christ? And let me just brief, you know, let me answer the question you never had. Uh, there are four real views on, on how to answer that question. And I think two of them are, I'll just say it, I think two of them are wrong and I think two of them you got to pick one. That's kind of how I think. So here's here's one. Some people would say that that you know not being bound to the law simply means you're free from the guilt that the law brought, and you still have to follow all of the Old Testament law. You have a responsibility to you know do all the big ones, the Ten Commandments, but also you need to follow all the diet restrictions and all of those things. And so that's one view. I think that's wrong. I think that's just, I don't think that there's biblical merit for that, especially the book of Galatians when Paul uh, talks a lot about how we, you know, in my mind, don't need to do that. Uh, the other, uh, on the other side of that is that we don't need to follow any of it. We can chuck it out the window and we can live, uh, we can live however we want because we have now come into a relationship with Christ. And the Old Testament is, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's outdated. It is, it, we don't even need to read it. You know, I don't know if people say that, but they think it and they feel it. It's gone to us. I think that's wrong. Um, but there are two views somewhere in the middle of those that I think that you probably should make a decision on. I think as a, as a Christian, if you're a Christian, you should make a decision about whether where you fall in these two views. And so one of the views is, is simply this. If it's repeated in the New Testament by authors who wrote after Jesus, then you need to follow those rules. Let me just tell you that all of the Ten Commandments, except for following the Sabbath laws, are repeated in the New Testament. So all of the Ten Commandments, except for one at least, would be, would be, um, would be followed by you if you follow this line of thinking. The other one says that we need to follow every commandment that is not, uh, that is not rejected in the New Testament. So you have an obligation unless the New Testament kind of rejects it and says that you no longer have to follow it. I think the Sabbath would also be one of those. Food restrictions would be another one of those. This is a little bit harder. I fall into the first one I just mentioned. I think that we need to follow the Old Testament laws as long as they're repeated in the New Testament, but I can see how somebody could come to a conclusion that you would follow all of them that are not rejected in the New Testament, like the ability to eat what you want because Jesus says that all food is clean. Peter has a vision, all food is clean. And so the, I just, I know you weren't gonna ask me that, but I think it's really important. And so with that in mind, let's get back to the big thing here. We have been set free so that we might belong to God through the body of Christ. The story we all believe as Christians is that we are sinners and therefore the law was just pushing us down and pushing us down and pushing us down because we had broken it and we were guilty of it. But Jesus came, he died for our sins, he came back to life, and then if we place our faith in him, we have, we have a new life that allows for us to belong to him and, and no longer be bound by the law. And, and here's, how, here's how I think we can see it. I have this, this book. And so uh, this is the Mark of the Lion series. I've, I've alluded to this. I'm getting like, somebody just raised the roof. I'm getting, I, uh, I think if Christians need to read like three things, the Bible, Mere Christianity, and the Mark of the Lion series. So uh, these, are, these are my big three uh, for every Christian out there. And, and what's, I'm just going to make it sound not so good, but I actually started the, there's three books. I started them 
years ago, finished the first one in like one second because it was so good, started this one, and people are going to think I'm crazy that are into these books, but I stopped, and it was mainly because my daughter was born, and, and in the last five years, I haven't found the time to read fiction anymore, uh, but I just picked it up recently, and, and I actually think it provides the perfect illustration for the difference between belonging to God and being bound by the law. There, there's a character in, in these books named Hadessa. She's the main character. Uh, such a good character that I would have gladly named my daughter Hadessa. Uh, but uh, I, uh, the story, uh, I can't tell you too much. And so this is, this is why I'm treading lightly here because I don't want to give it away because you need to go home and buy it. Uh, but Hadessa is a Jewish Christian in about 70 AD, a uh, little after 70 AD, who is taken into Roman slavery. And she's the main character of these stories. Uh, and, and she is an incredibly godly woman who possesses an incredible freedom despite the fact that she is enslaved in a physical sense. And no matter what happens to her, no matter how bad things get, no matter how people treat her, she is free in every sense that we can think of freedom. She is free to love and have peace and have joy and have hope. She is free to be all that God has called her to be. It's an incredible picture of belonging to God and how great it is. In, in this book, I'm introduced to a new character. And by the way, she loves the law, and she's a law, Old Testament law-following Jew, in fact. But yet, she is free from it, and she belongs to Christ. But in this book, I'm introduced to a new character who's uh, a side character. His name is Ezra, I believe. And Ezra is also a Jew, but not a Christian. And Ezra is a person who is equally passionate about the law, like Hadassius. But Ezra, he's a scribe, in fact, by the way, which is somebody who writes down the law over and over and over. He has it memorized. He knows it in and out. He's quoting it, and they have this long section quoting longer than most of us could ever quote any scripture in our lives. And all it does for him, all that he's getting out of copying it down every day, is how far away he is from being able to, to fulfill it. All it does for him is make him feel guilty and make him want to work harder. And it's like a, this never-ending treadmill of just trying. You can just see it in the way that Francine Rivers writes it. Like he just wants to do better. Like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's like, I'm trying, but I realize that it's not all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Like, I, I'm doing my best, but I realize that I can't actually do it. And so the law for Ezra is exactly what Paul is getting at here, this thing that binds him and makes him feel unfree and points out his guilt and holds him down from being all that God wants him to be. And in these two characters, Hadessa and Ezra, we see exactly what Paul is saying here, exactly why it is so great to be set free from the binding of the law on our lives and free to belong to God. If you don't die with Jesus, then the law just serves the purpose in your life of holding you down and making you feel guilty and showing you that you deserve condemnation, that you are not right. But when you accept Christ as your Savior, you are released from that. 
And whether you are a Jewish person still striving to follow the law, or you're a Christian who thinks that you need to follow more of the law than maybe I do, you are still, you are still free from the binding it had over your life because in Christ your sins have been forgiven and you now belong to God. That is what Paul is talking about. And he says, when you belong, and I love this because we're like, I could do whatever I want. When you belong, you've been brought into this relationship with God so that you might bear fruit. And the fruit is good. Let's just get that out there. Sometimes we think like, I gotta do more for God. I gotta do more for God. But, but like think of the fruit of the spirit. Who doesn't want love and joy and peace and hope and all of those things? Who doesn't want that in their lives? And the law doesn't give you the ability to do that. Belonging to God does. You can only produce those types of fruit in your life when you are free from the binding of the law and you become a person who belongs to God. You become free from the law so that you can live the life that God has designed for you. The, the life, in fact, that you, that you know you aren't living when you just are trying to follow the rules and failing over and over and over. Paul says, hey, when you're dead, you're no longer bound by the law. And hey, here's the good news. If you die with Christ, you don't. And so you don't spend your life feeling guilty and recognizing how inadequate you are. Instead, you recognize that you belong to God. You come into a relationship with God. As we'll see in Romans 8, you become the child of God by which you may cry, Abba, Father. And then, then you can start to produce the fruit that you wanted all along. And Paul just finishes here. He says, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law. I mean, that's really bad, right? The sinful passions aroused. The law was even arousing sinful passions in people. Were at work in us so that we bore fruit to death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not the old way of the written code. Paul comes back to this realm language he's been talking about. We've talked about it almost every week. You were either in the realm of, of Christ or... You were in the realm of, and he said it in a bunch of different ways now, and it's all really bad, realm of the flesh and law and sin and death. You were either in the realm of flesh, law, sin, and death, or you were in the realm of Christ. And when you're in the realm of flesh, law, sin, and death, you are not free, even though you might pretend to be free. But when you come to Christ through faith, you begin a relationship to him where you belong. Man, belonging is so important. You belong, and when you belong, you now serve by the way of the Spirit, and that allows for you to produce fruit. I just want to talk a little bit about sin, and I've been I'm kind of floating that idea. This is the other, the other question that you're probably not asking, but I think it's important to talk about, especially in our world today, uh, because sin is such a, uh, I don't know, an idea that our culture does not embrace anymore. And I wrote down a lot of stuff here, and I don't want to talk about it all today. Um, but, but when you study sin throughout Scripture, you begin to quick re quickly realize that, that some of the questions you might have, like where does it come from and uh, why does it exist in the world, the biblical authors, they don't really care about that very much at all. That's left to our modern-day theologians to discuss. Instead, what you see most clearly in the Old and New Testaments when it comes to sin is that the authors of these books that we call the Bible, they see sin in such negative way, such a negative way that they really, they really go 
out of their way to use just a multitude of words to paint a picture of how sinful sin is, if I can say it that way, how bad sin is. I mean, words like to miss or fail or or revolt or rebel or uh, like perverse or bad or wicked or uh, the the results of sin, toil, trouble, mischief, deviation from good, guilt, terms with theological orientation like lawlessness and terms indicating our spiritual badness. And in all of it, what you see is that sin, sin is that it just goes against God in every way. It is what is contrary to the goodness and nature of God. And the Bible really wants us to see that, that going against the will and nature of God is bad and everybody does it. That's my big summary of sin. And, and I think far too much, far too often in our world today, even in Christian circles, we minimize sin. We act like sin is not that bad. We embrace cultural norms so that we don't offend people and we leave the idea of sin behind. And I think what Paul would say, what Paul would say is that when you do that, when you minimize sin, all you are doing is allowing people to be stuck by sin and by the law that points out that sinfulness to them. I don't think we do any good for people when we pretend that sin doesn't exist because people will feel guilty even if they don't know the word sin. People feel guilty for the things that they do in their lives. And it is not a Christian's responsibility to say, you know what, feel a little less guilty. It's a Christian's responsibility to tell people why they already feel guilty in order that we might point them to God and say, you know what, all that you sense right now is that you are bound by the rules, but you can belong to a Savior. Sin is bad, and we cannot minimize that. We cannot minimize that. So today, I just want to say this. A couple of things. One, man, if you're not a Christian, you got to become one. (laughs) I, I, that probably wasn't the best selling point. Like, but you got to become one because I, Because you're guilty and you know you're guilty and there's things you feel terrible about. Maybe they happened years ago and you still feel guilty about them and and you're stuck just desiring someone to take away your guilt. That, let me put it in new terms for you, that's you being bound by the law even if you don't know the law. You're bound by it. Your conscience is pointing out to you as Paul says in Romans 2, your conscience is pointing out to you your guilt, that you are guilty of breaking the law. And if you will just become, if you will just at least look at Jesus, at least think about Jesus, at least consider reading the Bible and seeing what it says about Jesus so that you might maybe someday become a Christian, place your faith in what he did for you on the cross. And if you'll do that, you'll be set free from the power and the guilt that the law has produced in you. But for those of us who are Christians, two things. One, and I got an email last week because I alluded to this, so I'm going to say it again because it was an important point last week. Stop acting like this guilty, unjoyful, no peace person that carries the weight of your own sins and tries to pay some of the punishment because maybe you think Jesus' death wasn't good enough for you. 
The law, look, don't break the law. Don't, don't be out there running around acting lawless, doing whatever you want, being a sinner. Take sin seriously, but also take the forgiveness and the belonging to God seriously. Stop being so guilty. We have, I only am passionate about this because I feel like we have a really guilty church. And I've said before, and I want to say, not in like how much sin we commit, but in how people hold it over themselves. We have been set free from the law. The only place I believe that guilt has in your life is, is to stop you from continuing an active sin. But once you have stopped a sin and asked for forgiveness, if you belong to God, stop feeling guilty about it and recognize that the law no longer binds you. Point two. For you who are Christians, you belong to God. I love that. I love that. We have somebody in our church, this is just coming into my head right now. I think it's a good finishing thought, but, but they were adopted, and, um, and just that, that they were picked into their family when they were little. You know, there was, it was not the only choice, but that somebody said, I, I want to take you home you right here specifically I met him looked at him said you and then they came into this family to belong that's an important part of who they are right like their the way they identify you know in their lives their identifications wrapped up in that idea and if you're a Christian God looked at you in all of your mess and he picked you and said come on Join a relationship with me and you get to become part of his family. Our world is desperate to belong. And as Christians, we get to belong to our heavenly father and be treated as his child, his child. And he loves us and he cares about us and he's there for us. Don't minimize that. Don't minimize that. Embrace that, celebrate that, be excited about that. You are no longer bound to sin. You are no longer bound to sin, that's great. But you are no longer bound to sin so that you can belong to Christ. And so celebrate the fact that you get to belong to Christ and then live to produce the fruit that you can now produce because you belong to Christ. You are no longer bound to sin so that you can belong to Christ and bear fruit, so do that.